0: This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies, as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts, so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part, Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing, with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com.
1: Faskin's Emerging Tech and Venture Capital Practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax, and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns.
0: Hello and welcome everyone, I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Scott Stevenson. Scott is the CEO and co-founder of Spellbook. Spellbook uses GPT-4 and other large language models to review and suggest terms for lawyers' contracts, right in Microsoft Word. In this episode, we discuss Scott's co-inventing a new instrument, how to run experiments when building product, how they are converting their waitlist to Raven customers, nuances to building a co-pilot product, utilizing GPT versus creating your own large language model, and his blog post lego mindset versus woodworking mindset please enjoy my conversation with scott stevenson scott i'd love to start with your time at memorial university it's a school that's well known for a great engineering program what was that program like for you was there anything special about it or unique that you enjoyed
2: so it's computer engineering at memorial and um yeah, it, it was a fantastic experience. I think it was super well-rounded and um, just got a lot of exposure to software and uh, hardware. Um, and it, it's a co-op program, so it, it had six work terms as part of the program when I went through. And getting to kind of try basically six internships as part of the program, um, I think, was super, super beneficial and just... um gave me exposure early on to different types of companies and different ways of operating and, and gave me a sense of kind of where I wanted to go. I think that was, that was one of the most beneficial parts of that program. And you
0: invented a new instrument coming out of university. That's a, that's a first for me, for any guest, or I think just anyone I've ever heard of, what really inspired (laughs) that and, and and why, what interested you about like building a new instrument?
2: It wasn't just me, um, but myself and the music professor, uh, Dr. Andrew Sandiland, uh, who's also a composer, um, kind of, uh, worked on this project, uh, at the end of, it was initially at the end of my time, uh, at Memorial actually it was my last kind of, uh, co-op term, uh, working with him. And then we kind of spun it out into a company, um. Yeah, so we built this new electronic music instrument that's really, was meant to be a hybrid between an electronic instrument and uh, like a traditional acoustic instrument. And being from Newfoundland, we have like a pretty, pretty big culture of uh, performance and like um, a lot of people here play guitar or, you know, accordion, other types of uh, traditional instruments. And um, the thing that uh, Andrew Stanley noticed was that... Uh, he he was composing electronic music for classical settings where you would have people playing, you know, traditional classical instruments, um, combined with electronic performance. And he noticed that the audience could just never tell what was going on, on the electronic side, you'd have like, you know, a, an electronic performer behind like a mixing board, similar to a DJ. And, you know, people couldn't tell whether that person was just like push, pushing play like a DJ. I mean, like what's going on or are they actually, you know, doing something up there? Were they just twiddling knobs and what, what are those knobs doing? Um, so w- we wanted to build kind of a, an electronic instrument that really let the audience see the cause and effect of what an electronic performer is doing, uh, beyond just kind of pushing play. And so we built this thing called the immune, you can still check it out. We still have a page up at, at and and, uh, uh, yeah, with. We went through a whole bunch of different shapes and it was kind of m- meant to be held by the performer, kind of like a guitar or acoustic guitar facing out towards the audience. And, um, yeah, we ran a Kickstarter. Uh, this my first venture. Um, Kickstarter did not hit its goal, although we did pretty well. I think we hit like 70 or 80 K, um, towards our hundred K goal or something like that. And we got a ton of coverage. Um, but, uh, ultimately I, I kind of realized like, um, building like a niche electronic music instrument is, um, you know, maybe not the best business model or the most impactful business you could build. Um, and I, I got a chance to meet at trade shows, some of like my idols who had built um, some of some really iconic electronic music instruments and drum machines and synthesizers and things like that. And uh, still even, even the people, you know, who, who were kind of at the top of that field uh, never had very big companies um, or, you know, didn't have necessarily kind of Commercial success or impact that I, I think I was looking for as an entrepreneur, so didn't end up sticking that out. That out, but uh, you know, hope to get back to it someday, maybe after Spellbook.
0: With Spellbook, you initially were looking to like build a legal automation system that small businesses could use, and ultimately you pivoted. I'm always interested when companies do a decent sized pivot, and like, what does that take from? you know, leadership and founders and maybe reorganizing the organization. Can we chat a little bit about that pivot, what motivated it and what that process was like and maybe some things that you learned along the
2: way? We really ever perceived it as a pivot because we were just experimenting ruthlessly, uh, all the time um with everything we did. I think um we probably over the course of, you know, four four years or so ran around 200 experiments and with a hundred different landing pages, uh, for what we were doing. So it was just built into our culture that every two weeks we're experimenting with something new, um, until we find resounding product market fit. And we held a really high bar for what product market fit was. Um, we, we had a feeling that Um, you know, I I think during like this, this period of zero interest and, and a lot of free money, we had a feeling that like a lot of companies maybe weren't holding that bar high enough, um, in terms of deciding that, you know, okay, we have product market fit it's time to fully focus and scale the company. Um, so, you know, our bar was high. We, we always looked at CAC payback, you know, our our CAC payback period should be super low and people should be hauling this product out of our hands faster than we can provide it, um, like that's what product market fit should look like. And we just kept the company super, super lean until we hit that feeling of, oh, holy cow, this thing is uh, being pulled out of our hands um, faster than we can keep up with. Um, and again, yeah, we we launched maybe a hundred, around a hundred different landing pages. Um, our current, uh, director of growth, Kurt, um, was a big part of that. And... Um, Every one of those landing pages, we're, we're testing message market fit first. So, like, do we even have an idea for something that could possibly resonate with people? And uh, Spellbook was really just another one of those experiments, you know? It, it was like, you know, after around 200 of these experiments, we finally just got a hit. Um, and um, yeah, it, you know, at first it was just like any other thing we did. We thought, okay, this is cool. Maybe we'll get some leads out of it and a little bit of attention. Um, we'll be the first company in the world to apply large language models, uh, to legal automation. And, you know, people will be, um, you know, that at the very least we might just get some leads from that and, you know, a little, little bit of attention. Um, but, but it was immediately different from anything we had ever done before. Um, when we launched that landing page, people were converting, uh, much, much, uh, better than they were on anything else that we had done when we and when we showed people the prototype of what we had built um the reaction from customers was different from anything we had seen and we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't run like 199 experiments before uh but we we knew what it normally looked like normally when you show something to a customer they're like oh that's that's like cool um like uh oh that's uh, i'll definitely use it like everyone will always say those things um but when you but when you show something to a customer and it's like going to change their life substantially you know they get this like uh neurochemical reaction their pupils dilate they lean in this is um nfx has a great article about this called find the fast moving water which was influential on us at the time to go all in and they and in that article they talk about this reaction and it was just like nothing we had ever seen um and that's when we knew um that you know we had told our team, we were like, yeah, it might take us years of experimentation to hit, to strike gold and to find that lightning in a bottle. Uh, we just, And we have to kind of be a cockroach and wait till that moment. And then and then it hit and we were like, oh, holy cow, like, this is it. Like, this is what we've been waiting for. Um, and it was a hugely affirming moment because we had kind of just had faith that if we did enough experiments, we would eventually find something that was a knock it out of the park hit. And it was very evident in all the metrics that this was it. Um, so very quickly, uh, it was easy to uh, really start pouring our resources into Spellbook um, and, and the the large language model product. And uh, yeah, and and every time we put more resources into it, it would just grow faster and faster. And before you knew it, we had a 30,000 person waiting list and um, now 75, 80,000 people have signed up for a waiting list today. Um, yeah, so that, that pivot was pretty easy. Um, so at first it just looked like an ordinary experiment. And then when the data started rolling in, um, it was undeniable that we had hit some strong product market fit and, uh, it was pretty easy to convince the team to go all in on it.
0: I'd like to maybe chat a bit more on like experimenting, obviously. You know, maybe more companies will be doing that now in this type of kind of high interest, like funding environment. How did you keep that kind of motivation to keep going? You know, what was an action, you know, how did you run an experiment? What was kind of the data you were looking for when you were running that? I know you talked a bit a bit, bit about the neurochemical reaction there, but I, I just like to dive a bit more into like what experimenting means to you and how do you think companies can do that effectively?
2: One thing I want to say is like, um, you mentioned, you know, now we're in a high interest rate environment. What I I said that on Twitter once, and, um, someone's someone was like, it's not a high interest rate environment. It's, It's a normal interest rate environment now. Like, um, and that's, I think like something that's really important for startups to consider. It's like, this isn't, you know, we're not, we're not in like a, this isn't, um, kind of difficult monetary policy. This is normal. Uh, we're kind of back to more of a normal state right now. And, um, the constraints that companies are facing now are, I think, you know, not really higher or particularly difficult constraints. They're just real constraints. Um, there isn't, you know, an endless cash, um, to kind of fund startups right now. So one kind of side side note. Um, and, uh, I, I think it will be persistent. Like this difficulty, um, isn't really going to go away. Um, and, or anytime soon anyway, um. And, and just kind of have to get used to it. Um, in terms of the experimentation, I think, you know, number one is for your whole company and your board to hold a very high bar, uh, to, you know, what, what success actually looks like. And to understand that most companies do not hit anything like product market fit, uh, often for years and to not, um, convince yourself early that you have found it when you haven't, um, that's number one. Um, cause if you fool yourself, then you're going to think that, you know, your first experiment or your fifth experiment or, or your sixth experiment, you know, is, is the thing. Um, so that's number one. Um, when we were running the experiments, uh, you know, I think y- you just look from the top of funnel down and you know, the, the first thing you look at is, is there even message market fit? You don't even need to build anything. Um, you can just have a landing page that has some kind of message on it, um, or video or mock-up or prototype what you want to build, um, and see how people react to it. Um, one very easy way to test any idea is just to throw up a few paid ads with a small budget and lead people to that landing page in your target, target, target audience. If you have message market fit, then you're cost per conversion should be noticeably low compared to what you've done before. And that's something that we tracked um, very carefully. Um, so if you have poor message market fit, it's gonna cost you a lot of money to get one person to sign up for your waiting list or your lead list. Um, if you, uh, yeah, if you have message market fit, you'll see those costs go down to you know 10% or 1% of your other experiments, and you'll see people signing up very rapidly. So that's one way. I think another way I love testing is, um, if you, if you build up a little bit of a social media, um, audience either on LinkedIn or um, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. Um, one way you can test things is just by posting like a little, we got in the habit of like just posting little GIFs of things that we were working on. And, um, you can really quickly see like if that's resonating, um, with your audience or not. Um, so just posting organically, um, on social and seeing, you know, does it, is it one of those posts that gets like one like, and then no one ever sees it again, or does it get, you know, 50 to a hundred likes and people are sharing it and being like, Whoa, that's pretty cool. Um, that's another like cool way to get an early signal. Um, if something is working. So those are kind of like your top kind of like, you know, mess, I would say message market fit. Like, is this thing even going to cut through the noise and get people's attention? Um, because it's so hard to like, everyone has a, hundred item to-do list and is super distracted, getting to the top of someone's priority list is almost impossible. And, um, you know, one of the sayings we, we say on, on the team, especially when it comes to funnels and growth is like almost nothing works, like truly almost nothing works. Um, people are just too busy and have too much to think about and your chance of becoming the thing they care about today is like 1% or lower. Um, So that means that every word in your message has to really be thought about. Um, Every GIF has to be thought about. Like, you know, if your GIF takes too long to load or it takes too long to get into the meat, um, then it's not gonna resonate with people. Um, If your landing page uh, is too fluffy and not direct enough, um, you know, it's not going to convert. So I think everything starts there with, can you just get attention? that's that's number one and there's so much experimenting you can do oh yeah and the, and the number and the, and the other way you can do that is by yeah, showing something to people and getting like a qualitative reaction um seeing if their pupils dilate and things like that and that's a really good way to see if you're on something too but people generally will be overly optimistic about using your product so no matter what you show people they'll be like oh that's really cool i'm gonna i'll use it for sure um but uh you know so it's, it's hard to kind of pick beyond that and I do like running these like landing pages and ad campaigns because they're a little more objective. Um, like someone's not gonna click your ad and sign up for your wait list unless they truly care. Um, whereas if you get someone on a one-on-one call and ask if they like what you made, um, they're always gonna say yes, and it's not really uh, super objective. So that's where I'd start. I'll, I'll pause there. I could talk about you know going deeper into the funnel and like, okay, you have attention. Uh, how, how And how do you tell if you have product market when people actually start using your product? Um, I could go to that next, um, or we could talk about something else.
0: Yeah, I'd like to stay on that thread, just because that significant wait list you have. So it's like you've got the attention, people have come in through the funnel. How do you really make sure that significant wait list converts into people that are like actually using the product, staying with the product and continuing with it? So I'd love to like chat a little bit about that kind of more tail end of the experience.
2: So we are able to get attention and to get a big wait list. And that's because we also had a video, we had a video of this product in motion and lawyers were like, holy cow, like if if I had this, you know, it would change how I practice and it would change my day to day. So uh, we, we had really strong interests. People were sharing it organically. We're getting a lot of organic traction um, and, so how how do we actually start converting these people to come up, actually meet with us, uh, get on boarded and, and use the product? Um, so the next step was really activation of these folks. Um, so there's a couple of things. One, targeting. Um, because of what we're doing, like we're not onboarding any non-lawyers or non-paralegals at this time. Um, there's like regulatory and ethical reasons that we do that. So, um, but like targeting that list and figuring out, okay, who are the prime customers that will get the most benefit out of this product is kind of the next step. Um, so we did that and we're pretty ruthless about deciding, you know, really which customers to bring on first. Um, and then we built like a really detailed kind of scripted process to send people invites and to get them on board. And we really wanted to make it kind of failure, failure proof. Um, so, um, you know, er in our invite email that we send people every word in that email is thought about. And like the length of that email is thought about, um, like we really thought in detail about why are people going to be excited to receive this invite and then take the next step to come on board. And that worked, that worked really well. It was just, you know, good, I think good copywriting and good reminder of like why they signed up and what, reminding the user, um, you know, what, what they're, what they should be excited about. Um, but then the harder part is really activation and getting people using that product regularly. So for the initial activation in our market, um, we found that, uh, and, and I think with AI products in general, I think it's important to show people out of the gate that they can have a truly magical and amazing experience. Um, because these tools are, they're non-deterministic. They're a little bit unpredictable. They can be A little different every time you use them um so we didn't want to leave that first experience to chance um so we actually manually onboarded uh and we still manually onboard every single customer that we bring on board in a 20-minute meeting and in that meeting we set the customer up with a trial and um they get kind of they sit in the driver's seat and we kind of walk them through that first experience of using the product um and yeah, through, through that, they're able to see, wow, Spellbook can do really amazing things. Um, so then when they, they go off and start using it kind of on their own documents in the wild, and they have a little bit of a weird experience, um, they're reminded that, okay, like, I have had a really amazing experience. I might have to figure out how these tools work to be able to reproduce that more and more. Um, but they're able to draw on that amazing experience to give them confidence in kind of their, their future, uh, future use of the product. And that was really important for us—that kind of manual, manual onboarding step. And then we just, you know, kind of watch our usage analytics and saw if people would come back and, and keep using the product. And we just, you know, kept listening to people's requests and building new features and functionality. And the thing that we looked at to see if okay, do we truly have product market fit is ultimately your. Um, retention curves and particularly your your cohorted retention curves so you look at like okay out of all the users that came on in january you know what percent are still active in february what percent are still active in march what percent are still active in april um that's that is what what i think is truly the gold standard to see if you pick product market fit um is if ultimately if those retention curves flatten you're always going to have a drop-off in that first month or first week or whatever but what you want eventually is that those retention curves flatten out. And then eventually, you know, that your, say your January cohort, you know, maybe, maybe half of people drop up, but then half of people stick around for like ever, forever. Um, And that's when you have that cohort of users that sticks around and just keeps using the product week after week, month after month, um, some portion of your users. um, I think that's when you know that you really hit it. And um, that was kind of the data point that, you know i think investors were really interested in when we raised our our kind of recent 10 million dollar round and um i yeah i think that's like the hardest the hardest data point to drive um because getting someone to notice you um is one thing getting people to like actually come back you know every week or every day and use your product is you know a whole other challenge
0: are there any nuances to building a co-pilot platform i know you're kind of inspired there a little bit by GitHub Copilot. Is there like nuances to, hey, this has to be effective and improve the user experience, but does it also have to be kind of invisible and easy to use? Do you view that, is there a balancing act there? Is there some nuances to building a Copilot product versus maybe kind of like a platform
2: or something else? There there definitely is. And we knew from working with lawyers for years that, they really don't want to go to another platform or web app, and we we have we have a platform and web app um, called rally and which has done well and sold two hundred firms and is actually still used quite a bit and we're merging it with Spellbook in some interesting ways um but we learned that for the most part, you no know, lawyers don't want another web app to go to and um we we tried to build like our own document editor for lawyers we tried off a whole bunch of kind of idealistic things and then banging our head against the wall, we realized like lawyers want to be in Word, like that Word is where they work. That's like, if you're a programmer, you're in like VS code or your IDE. Um, if you're a lawyer, you're in Word all the time. And um, so we brought Spellbook to their workflow. And yeah, definitely made took the opinion of, we may have to sacrifice some functionality to do this, but we just want to be embedded in the lawyer's current workflow and we don't want them to have to change very much to use us. Um, so yeah, that there's are some huge trade-offs there. Um, but they were the right trade-offs for us and, um, having the lawyer, you know, not, not have to change almost anything in the workflow is important. And that's what resonated with me get copilot. So I have the software, uh, engineering background and, um, that's what part of what was so amazing to me about copilot is that this thing is just, um, always on and, uh. And, and, and you never feel like you want to turn it off. I'm like, why, why would you turn this thing off? It's just this wind at your back that's making you do everything a little bit better. And, um, that's what we wanted Spellbook to be is kind of this wind at the back of the user that is kind of always there, always helping, um, with very little kind of user inter- intervention. And, um, I think it's, that's an underrated approach still. I think we like, we built this before Chat GPT. So we never had like Chat GPT in our mind. We only had um GitHub Copilot in our mind, which came out earlier. Um, but I think after Chat GPT, people just started dropping like chat windows in in their apps. And um and we we actually have a chat window as well, but it's not but we also do a lot of other things. And um yeah the, the challenge with the chat window is like it is inter- it does interrupt your workflow. And I think more companies should be thinking about how you know how ai can work without you having to ask anything it should know what you want to do you know before you do it um almost it should be um suggesting to you what you should do next um rather than you always having to kind of ask ask it what to do
0: there, there's a lot of hype around ai right now and people building their own models and maybe others plugging into chatgpt and maybe people saying oh there's like a proper way to do ai What are your thoughts on that? Like, I know from other conversations you've kind of mentioned, it's really just about delighting the customer as easy and quickly as possible. So could you chat a little bit about, you know, maybe your thinking around the space and maybe that could help other founders that are determining how they should be implementing a model and
2: AI there. I have some pretty uh, strong thoughts on this. And um, first off, we we do a ton of things at Spellbook. Um, We use the off the shelf models and that's that's really where we started. You know, we also have kind of our own special secret sauce. Um, But, uh, you know, by by and large, you know, when when I'm on Twitter and seeing people talk about this stuff, I think people are, you know, way overemphasizing the importance of proprietary data, of, um, you know, kind of training their own models, using open source models and things like that. Um, The reality is what you can do off the shelf with GPT-4 is absolutely incredible. And we haven't even discovered half the things you can do with it yet. And um, yeah, I'm I'm very frustrated when you come across these kind of new AI startups and companies and they're like kind of in the lab kind of training their own models that will probably not outperform GPT-4. And they're selling it to investors like, oh, you know, we have our special proprietary model and proprietary data. And, um, you know, it's taking them forever to get to market. And, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, uh, or I, I think a lot of the time, there's just kind of a cheap and easy move of just, you just use GPT-4 to start, um, because there's so much opportunity there. And, um, this is something I think about a lot in startups in general. And uh, I always reference this, uh, kind of part of a book by David Serwin, who was a professional street fighter player. And, uh the part of the book is called Introducing the Scrub and he's talking about, you know, what what's kind of different about like a what you call a scrub in, in video games to so kind of like a, not a very good kind of mid-tier player um, versus like a professional player. And he talks about how like the professional player is, is actually just playing to win. Um, whereas, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but the, the scrub of a game is, you know, they have so many mental hurdles in the way in that like, they they think they're trying to. They have to learn the game, learn to play the game the right way, and they have to like uh, master the game in this very romantic way. Um, whereas the pro player is just going to play to win, it, and they're going to exploit super cheap, low skill moves if they can. Um, so you know, Serlin. Use the example of in Street Fighter, if you like throw your opponent five times in a row, that's what that's what the pro does. Whereas you know the the scrub will be like, oh, that's cheap. Uh, you, you shouldn't do that. You know, I you know I use these combos and like these other you know more high skill moves. Um, and uh, I think that really applies in startup a lot. Like go, as a startup, you're trying you're going up against competitors with like ten percent or one percent of the resources that they have. A, incumbents, the only possible way you can win is with cheap, high leverage moves. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's right for startups. You know, people sometimes use the derogatory term, like call, call these companies like wrapper companies. I think it's right for companies to be, to be rapper companies. That's the right move um, because it's so high leverage and there's so much opportunity there that hasn't been unearthed. Um, and so much value to provide to customers using these tools out of the box that you can, yeah, in some, in some t- cases, building a weekend, um, that's the right move um, most of the time. And then once you have customers, once you have product market fit, like, you know, we have a thousand customers now, um, then you can build all, and you have the resources and the financing, you know, you can build all sorts of interesting stuff to create a moat. Um, you can start using that data to do interesting things um, and to start creating your secret sauce. But, you know, 90% of startups just don't have any product market fit at all. So I think, they should just do those the cheap, easy move of like just use g p t four to get something into your customer's hand that's compelling, and then once you have product market fit, you know you can kind of take it from there um and uh yeah, but one one last thing on this is like I think uh Paul Graham has a great essay and kind of or part of one of his essays where he talks about like a heuristic to use is like kind of a, avoid prestige um like. If you're doing something that's, pre- that's prestigious, um, you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons a lot of the time. And, um, a lot of this AI stuff can, is really prestigious right now. on like social media, like, oh, I got this like open source model, you know, uh, running on my old Mac mini or whatever. Like, it doesn't really matter if it, it really doesn't matter. Like that might be a cool thing to say, but like, it, it really doesn't matter if you're not, um, uh, actually delivering value to customers. Um, so yeah. The, that's my thoughts on that.
0: I'd be curious to know if there was anything that you mimicked or you thought was prestigious earlier in Spellbook's journey that turned out to be just like the wrong focus, just incorrect. And have you kind of changed your thoughts on, I'm sure there's a bunch of things, but is there kind of one or two things that come to mind?
2: I would say earlier on in the company, before we were called Spellbook, you know, we started with this very idealistic vision that I think really resonated with a lot of uh engineers and technical people and um and it was kind of prestigious because we we actually i kind of came out of like the ethereum and like the smart contract ecosystem and we're like yeah we're gonna like turn all contracts into smart legal contracts basically we we weren't going to do it using blockchain that was kind of one contrary thing we did we're like we're not going to use the blockchain we're just going to make it so that if you sign a contract with someone the computer can understand everything in it and the actions in that contract can be automated and, um, you know, people thought that was super cool. It was kind of prestigious at the time because these sorts of smart contracts were really in vogue and everyone's like, yeah, like my my contracts shouldn't be PDFs. They should be like, you know, kind of like clean software that, that is really simple where I plug in like five parameters, I plug like five parameters into your employment agreement. And then all of a sudden it hooks up to payroll and you start getting paid. And, um, you know, it's um, super straightforward. So like, I think that, I think we started, I think where we started was kind of this sort of prestigious idealistic vision of how we thought, you know, contracts should work. Um, that wasn't really, didn't come from the pains of lawyers. Um, It did come from the pains of clients. Like legal clients were frustrated at how much legal services cost and they thought that there must be a better way. And, you know, legal contracts turning into software, you know, seemed like maybe a viable path, but um, I think ultimately that was, that was. We were wrong, um, about that path for contracting. Um, and yeah, my co-founder Daniel's a lawyer, but I wasn't, so I was a little more naive, um, coming into this and, you know, after working with thousands of lawyers, I realized that, you know, contracts really are intentionally uh, ambiguous. Sometimes they, they they leave room for ambiguity for a reason. And you can't build software around ambiguity. Um, they're intentionally, um, complex. There's a lot of good reasons that contracts are so complex. Um, there's a lot of good reasons that every contract is different. Um, and so we kind of had to come off our, our high horse <laughs> and, uh, listen to our customers, um, and kind of, uh, yeah, c- come up with something that was more pragmatic.
0: I'd love to jump in the quick fire round and I know you're a pretty avid reader, but would love to know one of your favorite books or if you can't really pick a favorite, maybe just something that you've read recently. It feels,
2: uh, tried to say this now. People make fun of you on Twitter when you say this, but Z- zero to one is a book that basically just cha- completely changed my life after I read it. And, um, I still find it hard to think of a book that would, um, beat that. I think I read it. Maybe it was around 2014. Is that, did it come out around then? Um, I, like my entire life, pretty much since i was a kid, I was trying to like start business i was trying to i was really i was into investing and like tr- trading and like I never got anywhere with it i just i didn't lose a bunch of money, but it was just you know I, when i since i was like in high school i was you know trading stocks and stuff like that i just couldn't figure it out i and i I would basically get net net zero returns on what I was doing after all that effort and uh and then I read zero to one, and it was like overnight uh it's like overnight I could kind of see the matrix, the code behind the matrix, and see what was actually happening in markets and competition, and all of a sudden, my I, investing in like trading activities just all of a sudden became profitable after I read that book, and that was also after I read that book that um I started going down this path and ultimately started um kind of spell book and um it drove you know, kind of the, some of the insights in that book drive a lot of our philosophy. And um, I think also just uh, gave us the confidence to be independent-minded and contrary and um, and, and and to really show the value of that. Um, and uh, I think that's really helped us um, kind of forge our own path as a company um, and and to be confident in it and to not kind of get caught up in sort of the, the mimicry, um, of what's happening, or at least to get ahead of it and to be the first ones, you know, there, cause obviously we're doing AI, AI is big now. Um, but we were the first company, um, to bring large language models to lawyers. Um, we weren't the fifth or the 10th or the 20th or the 50th. Um, and, uh, I think why we were able to do that, you know, ultimately can be drawn back to, to zero to one and, and um the, the thoughts in there and yeah i guess for for uh have you read it have you read zero one
0: yeah it's it's a really good book and i and i i feel like i had a similar experience to to me like it was one of the first books i read before kind of getting into tech and definitely very formative for me
2: cool yeah yeah i, I was gonna say for for your listeners like I, the, the insight that really you know i think mainly you know the insight of competition it's like Okay, if you're doing the same thing everyone else is doing, like you're, you're never going to generate kind of al- alpha. Um, you're never going to generate excess returns. Um, and uh, you know, good good ideas should be spiky. They should they should not necessarily look good at the time you're doing it. Because um, if they do, then you're going to have 50 competitors. Um, you know, and yeah, just just the value of, of continuing to find, you know, things in your in your culture, your way of operating. That are contrary and that add value. You know and those things compound over time, um, and yeah, if you can cultivate that independent mindedness, um, I think like the returns are can be really, really high. Yeah.
0: What are you most excited about in the next twelve months, personally and professionally?
2: Yeah, personally, I'm getting married in a couple of weeks, so I'm excited about that, um, mm-hmm. and that will be good. Um, professionally. Yeah. I mean, Spellbook is just, is growing super rapidly. Um, It's so exciting and so fun. It's hard to even think 12 months out because it's like every month there's some new breakthrough that we have or that the market has. That's super cool that, that we never anticipated. Like we just launched this new feature called uh, reviews, which you can basically tell the AI to review a legal document for you and mark it up. And it will, before your eyes and word kind of go through the document in detail, adding comments and track changes. Um, and it's just incredible. Um, we, n- we never thought it would work as well as it does. And um, I think we'll keep having those moments, you know, every three months <laughs> for the next 12 months at least. Um, so I'm excited to see what we'll uncover in terms of new capabilities um, and uh, get, getting that out to customers and and seeing how they react. Um, yeah, that's that's what drives me
0: how do you deal with hard times being a founder is challenging um do you have any strategies are you, are you into fitness are you into you know nature doing some walks like what, what really helps you out
2: a couple things um i think the first thing is that i wrote this blog post called uh lego mindset versus woodworking mindset and um that's the most important thing that talks about the most important thing for me which is um yeah, I I've, I've been involved with about 3 startups. I had the musical instrument startup. I worked with another company, uh, SaaS company. And then I worked with um with Spellbook now. And it took me 3 startups to realize like it actually just is absurdly hard. Like there, there there truly is no kind of easy way out. Um and at first I used to get anxious all the time because I thought it was supposed to be easier. I was like, you know, it's like you, you At first you think it's Lego bricks and it's like, oh, if I put like the right processes and people in place and, you know, I use the tried and true methods, you know, things should work and it never would, you know, when I trusted the process, like whether it's lean startup or whatever, like nothing would ever work. And that, and that was so anxiety inducing. I was like, oh my gosh, like something's rotten, like something's not working. And and that would keep me up at night. But after three startups, you kind of realized, oh shit, like nothing's supposed to work. Like this shit doesn't shit just doesn't work most of the time and you have to think like a woodworker not you you can't think being this mindset that you're going to plug lego bricks together and it's going to work um and uh, you, you have to think like i have to sand all the wood down and like polish it to make everything fit together and look nice and it's just this relentless force of kind of sanding what you're building and not just the product but the company as a whole and when you realize that that's the game. Like that. That's what it is. It just is hard. Like the Lego bricks were never going to work. Um, all that anxiety goes away for me because I know I don't need to be perfect. Um, I don't need to have perfect Lego bricks that fit nicely together. And now we have a company that you know, like passive people talk about, like passive income and stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, nothing net needs to work like that. I just need to be a little bit more patient as a woodworker than our competitors are. Um, I just need to you know, sand a few more hundred times than our competitors do. And, um, you know, then I'll be okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. Things don't have to fit together perfectly. It's okay if things are on fire. They always will be. Um, that That's the thing that gives me the most solace when things are hard. Um, and they're always hard. It's just the nature of it. Um, I also, yeah, I walk outdoors um, in the woods uh, every single day. And yeah, one thing I always say in my head is like, as long as I get to go for a walk every day, like life is great. Um and uh yeah i just i love that um moment of kind of peace and reflection yeah
0: i'll make sure to link that in uh the episode description there for easy access and just quickly before we go i want to open up the mic to you to chat about anything with spellbook uh how can lawyers find it um and we'll make sure to link everything in the episode
2: description as well so our website is spellbook.legal and uh Yeah, if you go there, click the reviews tab at the top to see the new uh, feature we just launched, um, which I think is blowing lawyers' minds right now. Um, So uh, that's, that's where you can find out about us.
0: Awesome. Scott, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your time and insights with us. So thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me, Evan.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.